The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks for the reading, Joyce, and uh, thank you for the prayer, DJ. Well, good morning. Uh, I hope you all had a great um, this week of celebrating with your family and friends. Uh, as was expected, uh, my team lost yesterday Oops. because my uh, legs decided to stop working after like the first game, but uh, I still had a lot of fun and uh, built some really you know, fond memories with, uh, with folks in the church. Uh, please uh, stop complimenting Caleb. He, his head is like this big now. Uh, just kidding. Well, before I begin uh, the message today, uh, let me give you a quick preview of uh, what's to come over the next couple of weeks. Uh, next Sunday, one of our pastoral interns, uh, he who uh, will be giving his first ever sermon to the our Cornerstone congregation. Now, I don't want to put any unnecessary pressure on him, but he better not mess up, okay? <laughs> and the Sunday after that, uh, we're going to focus our attention on missions as Pastor Mike Park will uh, visit us. Uh, he's the director of Radstock Ministries, also an assistant pastor at um, one of the Grace Churches in D.C. Uh, but he'll be here to share God's word and also share some mission updates for us, Okay. That's what's to come. Uh, today we're back in the book of Acts, and this will be the second to last message in our two-year-long series. The last thing we learned from Acts was that Paul was put on a ship headed to Rome where he was expected to be put on trial before the mighty Caesar. 
But then a violent storm caused them to be driven by the winds for 14 days. And now they find themselves swept up onto an island called Malta. Now, during this time, the people of Malta had no exposure to the gospel. So there was no Christian presence when the ship landed on this island. And yet, we we see here in this story that the people of Malta were an incredibly kind and hospitable people. And so that's what I want to focus on, actually, today, the fact that these people were a very pagan people. They were very superstitious people. You know, they looked at a viper wrapped around Paul's arm, thought he was cursed initially, and then once he shook it off, they thought he was now a god because he was fine. So, you know, very, you know, pagan. They probably worshipped different idols. And, and yet, they're extremely kind and generous and hospitable. So what's going on here? Now, uh, throughout life, you will meet non-believers who you really appreciate because they possess a kindness that is hard to find even among your fellow Christian brothers and sisters. I'm sure you know such people, right? There are not that many of them, but there are such people, right? You know know some of them. I mean, do they possess the Holy Spirit? No. Are they saved? No. But are they kind? And are they a great blessing to me and to you? Yes, they are. So what kind of grace produces such kindness in someone who doesn't even possess the Holy Spirit? We call that common grace, okay, in contrast to saving grace. So that's why the title is what it is today, okay? Uh, Here's the outline. Uh, Part one, what is common grace? And so initially it's going to feel a little slow because I got to Lay down the definitions, okay? So part one, what is common grace? Part two, why do we need it? And part three, how should we respond to it? Okay? Uh, So one, what is common grace? Let me offer a couple of useful definitions. Uh, The first one's from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, This book was written for lay people like like you, and so I I recommend you pick one up uh, if you like to, well, if you really want to grow in in your understanding of doctrine and theology. But uh, he defines it this way. Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Not just Christians, but non-Christians as well. People, everyone. God gives innumerable blessings to everyone that are not part of salvation. That's how he defines common grace. Another definition goes like this. The doctrine of common grace pertains to the sovereign grace of God bestowed upon all of mankind regardless of their election. So regardless of their, uh, if they're the elect of God, chosen sons and daughters of God, it doesn't matter. This, This grace is bestowed to everyone, all of mankind. Now, I do want you to understand that this concept comes from Scripture, It's not some kind of man-made thing. I mean, you won't see the exact term common grace in the Bible, but the concepts are present, okay? Let me offer some scripture passages for you to consider. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, right? It doesn't say the Lord is good to just Christians, but the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. 
Okay, in other words, there's some measure of grace given to all people. Okay, um, John 3, 27. John the Baptist answers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What? Not even one thing? Yeah, not even one thing. Everything a person receives, even the smallest thing, is given to them because God gives it to them. Matthew 5, 44, verse 45. Or Matthew 5, yeah, verse 44 through 45. But I say to you, listen carefully, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. But it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then it gives, it, gives, um, it gives a concrete reason why you should love your enemies. Right? It says, for he makes, for God makes his son, his, the sun in the sky, okay, not, not Jesus, but his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, look, you should love your enemies because see how God loves his enemies in this way? See how God is so generous and kind to his enemies? Therefore, you should extend grace to your enemies as well. That's, that's the logic here, right? Does the sun discriminate? Does the sun only you know, come down on your house, you Christians? No, the sun, it, it shines upon the believer and the unbeliever. The rain falls on the crops of believers and the unbelieving farmer as well. That's a benefit that God gives to all people. That's an example of common grace. Another passage, Acts chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. In the past, or in past generations rather, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Praise the Lord. He's, he, he allows us to be satisfied with food and gladness. And all the good things he gives to believer and unbeliever alike, it's meant to serve as a witness. It, it says he did not leave himself without a witness. Right? These things are meant to be uh, evidence that he is with us, that he is real, you see. So we learn also that common grace in this passage is not, is not limited just to sun and rain and the four seasons, but that it also includes the blessings of, of food that we all love to enjoy and the satisfaction that comes from it when we eat it. And that is why, brothers and sisters, that regardless of, of one's belief system, you can have a great palate and have the potential to be a great chef and be part of creating this amazing food culture that everyone can enjoy, right? Isn't that a great gift to humanity? And no matter what country, whether they're a Christian sort of a, you know, influenced country or not, you know, you go to like, you know, even like a, you know, a country in, say, Europe who's abandoned the gospel long ago or, you know, a country in Africa, uh, wherever, you know, let's go, let's go to Brazil, let's go to, you know, East Asia, you will be able to enjoy this wonderful, rich food cultures. What is that? That's an example of common grace. But common grace is not just limited to the physical realm. 
Okay, Genesis 20, verse 6, and God said to him in, in the dream, and so God is speaking to this king Abimelech. Let me uh, help you recall the story. You had Abraham who was called to be like a sojourner, and so he, he leaves with his wife, and they're kind of going through these, these foreign lands, and they fall into the hand of Abimelech, and Abimelech, he has the power to do whatever he wants. Foolishly, Abraham uh, hides the fact that Sarah was his wife, and so Abimelech, he could have very easily just raped Sarah uh, if he wanted to, but for some reason, uh, he didn't. And uh, God shows up in a dream, and he says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, Abimelech, and it was I, I did this. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. What is this teaching us? Well, it means that, see, the existence of a moral conscience and the ability to practice this kind of moral constraint is also because of God's common grace. Right? It wasn't because Abimelech was good in and of himself. It was God. He, he, he disallowed Abimelech from doing such a wicked thing. I like, I like how uh, Wayne Grudem, he kind of summarizes. I'll, I'll need, let me share a, a portion of what he writes. He kind of breaks it down this way, which, is, which I think is helpful. Okay? Regarding common grace, he says, see, in the moral realm... God gives his common grace to restrain people from being as evil as they could be. We can see this practically lived out in Western culture. Whereas we have largely abandoned our Christian heritage, our society is not yet a nation of cannibals. In other words, we are not as bad as we could be. I mean, do you really believe that apart from God's grace, all of us will become literal cannibals, right? I do. I, I, I fully believe that because I believe in common grace. The only reason why we are as good as we are, as good as we are, not as wicked as we could be, is because God's grace restrains us from being such vile people, you see. We would all be like Hitler's in the worst. We'd all be like Nero in his later years where he became this ruthless dictator, We'd all be like him and worse without God's common grace. Uh, in Jewish history, you had a king named Cyrus. He was also an extremely pagan king who was guilty of, you know, all sorts of idolatry. He was a king of, he was a king of Persia at the time. But, see, God used this powerful pagan king to actually release his people from Babylonian captivity so that they can return home. This is the God we serve. God not only uses believers, but he also uses unbelievers to do his bidding. God can do that. So God, he, he has this moral, you know, uh, sovereign authority over believer and unbeliever alike. It's his grace working out. And Grudem continues, in the intellectual realm... God has given each person a measure of knowledge through common grace. Right, so do you, know, do you know why everyone doesn't have like an IQ of zero? Right? It's because of God's common grace. Right? God has, see, it's not just that Christians are smart. You have, you have like these amazingly brilliant non-Christians too. 
Why is that? God's common grace. Right? Uh, John tells us, he writes, uh, John tells us Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. So this means that we all have a measure of understanding because of Jesus and the, the grace that he offers. In addition, we all know something about God because of common grace, even though you may be an unbeliever, right? That the conscience that's at work in your heart, you know, it, un- unless you actively suppress the knowledge of God, right? You know, you know who God is, right? You know that there is someone greater out there, right? Uh, that's what the Bible tells us. And lastly, in the societal realm, in the social realm, we see God's common grace in family and in governmental entities. In other words, these are all expressions of God's common grace. Uh, in the family, many unbelievers enjoy the benefits of marriage and children in a stable family, though they do not acknowledge the source of marriage. So even, even though you may deny God, even though you may reject him as a source of these blessings, guess what? God is so kind. He allows unbelievers to enjoy the fruit of marriage, to enjoy blessing of children. This is all expressions of common grace, right? Even the, you know, the government that we always like to criticize, government institutions meant to be expressions of common grace. So look, basic human morality, intelligence, I would include musical talent, artistic ability, marriage, family, children are all the result of God's common grace. What a generous God we serve. Uh, there is also some uh, specific examples that are found in our passage today that I wanted to highlight quickly, okay? Verse 2, the native people here in Malta didn't just show any kind of kind. It was an unusual, an unusual kindness, Luke writes. But they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cool. I mean, these are strangers. I mean, you know, they could have looked at these, you know, uh, strangers as, as very suspicious men. You know, why, why would they go out of their way to do all this stuff? But they did. So, so Luke calls it an unusual kindness. Verse 9, or sorry, verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were, ha- were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named, let me call him Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three, not just one day, not just two, but three days he served as a generous host. Why? Why would he do this? Common grace. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we we needed. (laughs) Why would they do that? Why not just kind of go with the bare minimum? Why not be a minimalist? Just say, hey, you need some water? Here's some water. You know, here's a little bit of food. I'm sorry, it's all we can afford. And that, that would have still been generous, but so whatever we needed, right? They stocked, they stocked the ship up really well. Why? Common grace. So part two, why do we need this? Why do we need common grace? Number one, without common grace, we would all be immediately condemned. We would all be damned, to, be, to put it bluntly. You know, if God removed all expressions of common grace, then that would mean we would all be damned since we would immediately get what we all deserved, right? That is eternal condemnation. But this does not happen because God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, as his word says in Psalm 103. So he does not treat us the way we should be treated, okay? 
You know, not everyone receives saving grace, but everyone receives some measure of God's grace, which is called common grace, right? Secondly, without common grace, none of our earthly institutions would be able to properly function and the world order would collapse. Have you ever thought about that? Like, how, how is this world being sustained? How has this world been sustained for so many centuries? The well-known theologian Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, tells us what common grace accomplishes. He sums it up this way. Common grace curbs the destructive power of sin, maintains a, in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible. It distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men. It promotes the development of science and art and showers untold blessings upon the children of Men, okay? So without common grace, we're doomed, essentially. We got nothing, really. You know, one reason why we've seen an increase in violence over the years is because the common grace restraints in our society have been gradually eroding, right? Examples would be like um, these sensible laws that used to be in place are no longer in place. By the way, a good law is an expression of God's common grace as well. Why should it be there? Well, God put it there because he's a generous and kind God. You know, having a police force that can actually enforce such laws would be a good thing, but see, all these things have been sort of scaled back. And so when these basic moral restraints are lifted, more violence, of course, is going to happen. But I also want to make clear that God can also choose to willingly give people over to their sinful desires as judgments upon them because of their ongoing rebellion. Uh, and this can also be applied to cultures and societies. Uh, but Romans chapter 1 is an important chapter. And in that chapter, we read, for this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations. With, that's just a complicated way of saying that they became homosexuals, okay? That, that the homosexual ideals have, have become pervasive in this culture, society, and so what, when, when the... The logic flows like this. When people continue to reject God and rebel against him, okay? See, God remains patient for a time, but at some point, God's patience, it ceases, and he decides to give people over to what they really want, okay? And it's to their sinful passions. And that, that's the picture we're seeing. And so this, this vicious cycle is created. If you... If you are someone who is rebellious continually without humbling yourself before God, that is not good news for you. What's going to happen is he's going to then eventually give yourself over to your sinful passions even more. Uh, and that is why, brothers and sisters, many Christian leaders uh, believe that, that this, is, this kind of thing is happening in our country today, you know, like virtually all of our, what used to be well-respected institutions have been eroding. Have you noticed? Why? Because God has allowed 
more people, thankfully not all of them yet, but he's allowed more people to pursue what their sinful hearts crave after. And the moral restraints that I've said before have been lifted, right? Thus more corruption everywhere. This is not a good trend we're seeing. Thirdly, without common grace, gospel ministry will be greatly hindered as people's hatred toward God would make evangelism and missions virtually impossible. You know, I mean, think about it. The reason why we can even have a cordial conversation with unbelievers uh, that doesn't lead to violence is because of common grace. But have you noticed that it's been hard to even have a conversation, like a, you know, a decent, cordial conversation with people these days? Right? The, the, the level of hatred has just intensified all across the board. Now, looking at our passage, I, I understand why the people of Malta weren't openly aggressive and violent toward Paul, well, it's because the Roman soldiers were present, right? The, the Rome, it's, like, it's like the police force was there. <laughs> it's like the, 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 common, the common grace restraint was there right? that did not make it possible for the people of Malta to become aggressive or violent. And so I get that. See, but the presence of Roman soldiers, it, it still it, it didn't mean that they had to show this unusual kindness and go out of their way to make sure these, these strangers were taken care of so well, which is what they did. And so, I mean, what, what is that, right? And my point is this, brothers and sisters, see, there, there would be no possibility of any form of kindness between strangers unless God allowed it by his grace. Right? It, it makes, this is what makes ministry possible. And, and, <laughs> The reason why ministry seems so hard right now is because it's like what I said. It's because the, the common grace restraints have been gradually eroding and, and hatred has intensified, you see. Part three, how should we respond to common grace? First, we should re- respond with appreciation and gratitude. Okay, thank God for it. I wish there was more of it right now in our society. You know, when I was a young Christian, I had this, at at a certain point, I had this really newfound love for Jesus. Uh, And when I was in that season, it was very easy for me to completely shun anything that wasn't explicitly Christian. Because I wanted to make sure my life was pure before God. You know, my, my prior life was a bit messy. My mind was so worldly, I realized. And so in my effort to grow my faith, I felt the need to immerse myself in Scripture and to leave behind all the K-pop music that I used to <laughs> I just wanted to listen to just soul-edifying music, right? And I, I wasn't the kind of guy that just burned all my cassette tapes, but I just, I just, I, I, I wanted to just read scripture, kind of, you know, do away with all these other, other books and distractions, just read scripture, meditate upon it, you know, listen to good, wholesome music. 
And I don't think that was a bad thing for me at all at the time. In fact, I think it's what I needed to do to reorient my heart and mind as a young Christian. But see, my point that I want to make is um, there, there is an extreme view one can take. See, the mistake would be to conclude that any and all work of a non-Christian has no value whatsoever, right? Uh, see, if there was no such thing as common grace, then that may very well be true. But the fact of the matter is that God uses the King Cyruses of the world to do his bidding, whether they realize it or not, okay? I mean, there are beautiful components within jazz music, okay? Not that I'm, I'm a huge fan of jazz, but I, I can appreciate beauty when I see it, okay? Or classical music that are, that's not written by, you know, like Bach or whatever. <laughs> see, my, my, my knowledge is limited. But my, okay, how about Beethoven? He, was, he wasn't an explicit believer. But I, I appreciate greatness when I, I can appreciate greatness when I see it, you see, you know? Mozart wasn't, wasn't some, you know, explicit Christian. And yet, you know, everyone virtually says, well, his music was beautiful, right? Why? How, how is that possible? Well, common grace. Uh, let me also add, I'm sure you noticed this uh, because it's become abundantly clear to me, you know, uh, because many of our Christian leaders have lacked boldness during this time we're living in, there have been quite a few unbelievers, right, who have been pushing back strongly against the government tyranny that we've been all experiencing or the transgender movement that's been further eroding uh, the moral fabric of our country, right? I mean, it's like that was supposed to be the church's job. And that was supposed to be the Christian's job to push back against these falsehood. But since the church has lacked courage to speak out, you have these unbelievers who have been fed up by this, the social disorder they've been witnessing. <laughs> you see them speaking out more and more. Okay? And whenever we see unbelievers do the right thing, we should recognize it as a result of God's common grace working itself out in their lives and respond with gratitude. I could appreciate that. I might not agree with your religion, you atheist, but I can appreciate the fact that you recognize what is good and right, right? That posture. I think that's appropriate. So, brothers and sisters, I would say be careful not to reject everything that unbelievers do as totally useless. Right? God can be in it as well. Right? He, he uses the King Cyrus of the world to do his bidding, as I've said. Secondly, how should we respond to it? We should respond with caution. Okay, um, don't, don't forget that common grace has its limits for sure, okay? And its most obvious limit is that it doesn't have the power to save. I mean, I mentioned one, one extreme of uh, cutting yourself off completely from, you know, secular influences, but there is also another extreme. You know, I, I've seen Christians become so enamored by secular artists and musicians and philanthropists where these, it's, it's not just that they appreciate these people's works, 
right? It goes beyond that. I mean, they begin to idolize such people and, and the work that they do or to the point where you can't even criticize right, these, uh, these secular figures in front of them. I, I remember um, pastoring, when I was pastoring a church in Philly, there was a student who applied to the uh, Bill Gates Foundation scholarship, you know, to get, a, to get some help for college, and I think she, she received close to a full ride, right, to a really, really reputable school. And, and once she received this Bill Gates scholarship, right, she practically idolized the guy, saying, see how great Bill Gates is, you know? And uh, he, she elevated him so much that I, I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't see anything bad about him, you know? That's, that's dangerous when you elevate someone, right, into the form of like an idol. There's also a student, uh, I was um, concerned about the popularity of the book titled Da Vinci Code. Uh, there was a, a, a point where it was really spreading like wildfire and there was really uh, some faulty ideas in there that were uh, leading some Christians astray and so I presented it to my, my youth students and there was one, one sister, one high schooler who came up after my seminar, and she said, Pastor, uh, next time you, you choose to criticize this book, um, can you make sure you let me know in advance because I'm not going to show up, right? And uh, it was clear to me that she just had this, this inordinate amount of affection for Dan Brown and his, his writings. And so I had to gently rebuke her, basically, by, by saying, look, you got to be careful what you give your heart to because um, your high appreciation for good literature can make you become fixated upon the gifts rather than the giver of such gifts. And that leads me to my last point, okay? Uh, we got to know, we got to proceed with caution, okay? But we, by knowing that, by knowing what common grace is ultimately meant for, okay? Like all grace, it's meant to point to the ultimate giver of grace. And so we should never think that common grace is enough. We should be thinking about sharing the gospel with others so that God's saving grace, right, the the better version of grace could be experienced among those who have only tasted this lesser form of grace called common grace, you see. That should be our posture, right? Romans chapter two, verse four says this. Do you presume on the riches of of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see what that's saying? This verse helps us realize that common grace is an expression of God's patience and kindness toward humanity, right? This is the era of God's common grace where God is not sending like balls of fire down to destroy everyone because of our sin. He's dealing with us very patiently. This is an expression of his kindness and says, do you not know that God's kindness, this kindness that he's exhibiting is meant to lead you to repentance? See, common grace is offered so that people would have more time to recognize God's goodness, and respond to him with humility by repenting of their sins. That's the point. But sadly, 
Sadly, I know some people who are no longer committed to church or even to the faith because they've reasoned in their minds, well, you know, the church is filled with so many hypocrites. And guess what? I have unbelieving friends who are better people, who are nicer, and I don't see the real need for church anymore because I can just get my community over there, right, with these unbelieving people who are so much nicer than you hypocrites. Right? You see what they're doing when they do that? They're, they're missing the whole point of common grace. They're treating common grace as sufficient by itself. Look at our passage today again. You know, after meeting the people of Malta, these very nice and generous people, I'm sure any, any one of us would have been blessed and amazed by the generosity of these people. Paul did not conclude, wow, these people are so kind. I guess they don't need the gospel, you know? <laughs> and how nice it would be for me to just live among such good people and avoid the path of suffering that I'm on. This is not what he was thinking. You know, in our passage today, the author Luke does not specify that Paul actually preached the gospel to the people of Malta while he was there for three months. But, I mean, take a step back. I mean, it, it is, don't you think, implausible? It's not plausible to think that Paul did not speak truth, the truth of God's word to these people. You know, maybe he wasn't given the opportunity to, to hold a big rally. He was, a, he was a prisoner still, right? But I have no doubt in my mind that he shared the gospel to individuals whenever he was given the chance to do so. Luke does tell us in verse 8 this interesting detail. It, says, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever, and, and Paul visit, visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And so there was this active healing ministry that he was doing while he was there for sure. That, that's what Luke uh, details for us. But see, even though Luke doesn't mention anything about the gospel especially being shared by Paul, I want you to know that according to history and tradition, we know that Publius was converted to Christianity sometime soon after this event, and he was made the first bishop of Malta. And St. Paul's Cathedral of Medina, that's the name of this, this, this you know, impressive st structure that was built, uh, th there was an original building that was built, and then they had to kind of renovate it because uh, it was getting aged. But... St. Paul's Cathedral of Medina is believed to be standing on the original site of Publius's home. Right? That's what we know from history and tradition. And so my point is this. Did, did Paul's appreciation for the people of Malta stop him from sharing the gospel? No. It didn't matter the amount of unusual kindness they extended to him. He knew what they ultimately needed was saving grace, and that could only come by hearing the gospel of grace and through faith and repentance of sins. You following? So, brothers and sisters, just because you may have some people in your life whom you love and adore and treasure, 
but they're unbelievers. You know, just because you may have this great respect for the people you work with because they're good people, just because your favorite band produces music, let's say, 10 times better than any Christian band you know, right? just because there have been some amazing secular influences in your life, do not think that common grace is enough. It's not enough because it does not have the power to save anyone. It's simply an expression of God's kindness so that we can fall on our knees, humble ourselves, and repent of our sins and receive a greater mercy. Brothers and sisters, common grace, like all grace, is meant to point to the ultimate giver of grace, So until we see him face to face, let's faithfully testify of him and the life he offers through his son above anything else. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for the grace you bestow upon all people regardless of who they are because such grace reveals your patience and kindness towards sinners. And without such grace, there would be no hope since all would receive what they ultimately deserve. Truly, it is your kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. Lord, in light of what you have taught us today, may we be wise in how we respond to common grace in the lives of our unbelieving friends, our coworkers, our family members, or any member in our society who may have extended an unusual kindness to us at some point in our lives. Even as we may be appreciative and thankful for such kindness, may we never conclude that common grace is sufficient for anyone in this life. For we know that it is not by our good works or our good character by which we can be saved. For all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are in need of the saving grace offered to us only through faith in Christ. So as we approach your table which is a visible display of the gospel. May you further assure us of these realities once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We invite Pastor David to come and administer.